Current Casts on Dublin Digital Radio. Welcome to No Fixed Address, a monthly podcast in collaboration with Inner City Helping Homeless that sheds light on the homelessness crisis and the people lobbying for change. The housing crisis has affected us all, whether it be young people unable to afford astronomical rents in the city centre, people who are would-be first-time buyers that are in no way eligible to get a mortgage, People that are being forced into emergency accommodation, having lost their homes. Families, increasingly, becoming the people that are the new face of the homelessness crisis. Inner City Helping Homeless is an entirely volunteer-run organisation based on Amiens Street in Dublin 1. It was founded in 2013 in response to the huge increase in rough sleepers on the city streets. And since it's been running, there has been no reduction in homelessness. To get an insight into how a volunteer-run organisation such as this both keeps afloat and serves the ever-growing homeless population, we've got the founder and CEO Anthony Flynn here with us to tell us a bit more. So Anthony, can you tell us a little bit about the fact that you've just come from the office there before you came to meet us? What has, what's been going on today? What, what's affecting homeless people today in Dublin? Um, today... Well, advocacy supports were, were on the, the forefront of everything today. Um, the Metro Hotel um, incident two weeks ago saw a number of families um, were actually made homeless that were living in apartments above that hotel facility. Um, on that night in question, we were actually on scene there and we believed that there was a number of families that were um, being supported in the hotel through emergency accommodation um, at the time. And we found out later on that it was actually another hotel in the area uh, that was supporting those 32 families. But um you know, I suppose two weeks has gone by and there's been, you know, very little said about the Metro Hotel and what happened out there. And, um, you know, what we've learned is that a number of families have been made homeless from um, the actual building. The building housed a number of apartments and um, a lot of them privately owned and um, people bought apartments when they were built uh, a number of years ago. And I suppose we're in a position this week um, where there's up to 40 individuals now um, up until this week that were being accommodated um and have basically been told to uh, attend the homeless service unit now um, that they are now homeless and there's nowhere for those individuals to go and will have to register as homeless with homeless services. So these people are homeowners that were living above the Metro Hotel and how long were they given after the fire to, you know, what sort of provisions were made for them directly afterwards? Um, well, we're looking at two weeks and, you know, what, what we have is a, a sense of um, in urgency and, and you know, we we. we from, from the council's point of view and, and, and those that um, are involved there that, you know, the quieter they keep this this um, issue, you know, well, there'll be no public outrage. And, um, you know, there's an awful lot of hiding going on in regard to homeless services um, when, when it comes to uh, trying to get an issue out there or, or an issue being explained to the public properly. Um, and I suppose, you know, two weeks after afterwards, we're finding that 40 people now haven't got homes and those 40 people uh, have to present themselves as homeless to the homeless service unit. Um, the, 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 the likes of... Uh, the, the two weeks that have passed by and the hotel that they were put up in and um, was being paid for um, whether that was by the council or through the insurance companies or whatever it might have been we're not directly sure um, across the board with each individual family but you know the fact is that two, two weeks later these families have all been made homeless um, the main concern on the night was the hotel because you know what we see around the city at the moment is that majority of hotels in Dublin are housing homeless families um, as in emergency accommodation 
Uh, you know, there was 125 million euros last year spent on homeless services in Dublin alone. And a lot of that money um, would have went to providing emergency accommodation through B&Bs and hotel facilities. So on the night of the fire, we believe that those people in there that were being housed under emergency accommodation, Section 10 funding, we later found out that there wasn't. And, you know, subsequently found out then that these families that were out there um, that were living in the apartments overhead of being made homeless in the meantime. So, um, you know, we've we've seen a stark increase in the rise of, of um, the number of children and the number of adults that have become homeless lately. And this, this month is going to see that skyrocket, in my opinion, with, with all these families that have been made homeless over the last few weeks. I think it's something that people very rarely think about, that if a fire were to happen in your building, that realistically you might not have a home to go to within the kind of weeks coming afterwards. And it just makes me wonder, what do you find have been the big changes in the way in which people have been becoming homeless since you started with Inner City Helping Homeless? Well, I suppose, you know, now we're, we're talking about a totally different demographic of people that are homeless. Um Five years ago, if you, if you would have asked, you know, and I suppose through the My Name Is campaign, we've actually surveyed um, people in regard to their uh, perspective on, on people that are homeless, you know, or we've asked the question, um, who, what is a homeless person? And, you know, figures that come back through that, um, through that survey actually show that over 70% of people would identify a male uh, in the age range of 30 to 50, somebody that would have substance abuse issues, someone that would be seen um, in, in a local town with a sleeping bag. And all these questions or all the answers to the questions that were, were put out there um, demographed a different type of person that is homeless now. And what we've seen, particularly over the last three years, is is um, you know, we've more children entering homeless services at a higher rate than ever before. Um, we, we've had more adult, female adults um, entering homelessness um, and again at a higher rate than ever before. So the demograph of people that, that was there um, in regard to the male, um, you know, the age range and stuff like that, that has totally changed. It's, 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 it's totally become um, a position now where we've, we've that many people that are renting homeless services that were never in that demograph before. Um, and, you know, that's not to say we're reducing the number of males either that are entering homeless or, um, you know, the, the problems around um, those people entering homelessness. We've got a, a new genre of people that have basically, um, you know, become victim of, of the, the economy, um, become the victim, victim of vulture funds, um, bank repossessions, marriage breakdowns, um, a lot of those marriage breakdowns were because of um, the, the change in the economy and, you know, people losing their jobs and turning to alcohol. And, you know, there's a major, major, I suppose, uh, change in, in the way we did perceive homelessness before. And, you know, when we look now, um, we're looking at children now are probably uh, are the highest number of homeless individuals. You know, we're talking 3,800 children. We have a total of this week about 10,000 people across the whole country that are homeless. Um, last month's figure saw 3,800 children and you know I would believe that that would be a hell of a lot higher um, this week we're talking probably over the 4,000 mark in regard to children and you just mentioned there the the my name is campaign which I've seen kind of on Twitter and things like that can you give me a bit of background into what what kind of generated that campaign in the first place and what its main aim is well the I suppose the main aim was to highlight child homelessness and put a face to the name of homelessness. So what we done was we used um, children that, that are affected by, um, by, by the epidemic that is homeless right across the country. And, you know, when we speak about the demographic of people that, that you know, uh, people believe are homeless, that whole demographic, as I said, has changed. And what we needed to do was let the public know 
that the uh, that the children are, are, are now um, you know at the forefront of homelessness and that we have children that are living in B&B facilities and emergency accommodation facilities called family hubs and hotels um, you know a massive amounts of expenditure being paid through these hotels and um, privately operated facilities around the country to house um, children and, and adults at the moment and I suppose the My Name Is campaign um, w- was launched in order to change public perception, um, to allow the public the knowledge or for the public the knowledge of what's actually going on within homeless services. Because I suppose the powers that be or, or, or those um, that are tasked with, with giving us or providing us with this, this information don't want to do so. Um, you know, the information is not readily available to the public in regard to how bad the statistics actually are. Um, you know, and we endeavour every month to inform the public of that and, and tell them exactly how many children are entering homelessness. Um, you know, the campaign last week um, had a protest at the Taoiseach's office. We had 488 children um, through February enter homeless services. That was 17 children a day through one month, um, and that's not including adults. So, you know, the, our job, I suppose, um, or the job of the My Name Is campaign, is um, to inform the public of exactly what's going right and what's going wrong in regard. And at the moment, there's nothing going right. Um, in, in our opinion, um, we're, we're going. The, the figures are going north, and, and uh, you know they're continuously doing that. So uh, the my name is campaign has put a face to the name. Um, we've taken children's stories. We've taken the stories of um, families that are living in emergency accommodation units, and um, we've published those stories. And we've given the public real life factual events that have, that, that are happening. And I suppose even now, if you look on um, the My Name Is campaign Twitter account, only last week, um, we would have had a, another story of a family that are, are living in emergency accommodation. And it's about getting their story out there. Um, People are living in unsuitable, you know, uh, accommodation, and you know, families are being placed across the city in in, in areas that they're not, not that's not known to them. Um, you know, I know one family that has to take three buses in the morning to get their kids to school, and three buses back in the evening to get their kids to school because they're being uprooted from their normal um, their normal day to day life in in regard to an eviction, um, and placed in a family hub. So, you know. That's not acceptable, in my opinion, that any child should have to get three buses to school in the morning, you know, and three buses home in the evening. And then when you do get home in the evening, you're not in a position where you can have a meal because there's no cooking facilities in these hotels um, or the majority of these B&Bs to be accessed by the family. So, you know, children are also, they're, they're not eating correctly. They're, they're um, you know, it's, it's a case of eating McDonald's or eating pizzas um, on a bed, doing your homework on that bed, sleeping in that bed, not being able to go out and play with your friends because you're in that facility. Um, day and night outside of your school and hours. So, you know, there's just a big, big problem and a big issue in regard to homeless services at the moment. And I suppose we aim to highlight that. Mm. One thing that I thought was interesting is that I've seen the kind of, I suppose, mini campaign that you're doing around documenting like using photographs to show the substandard level of that emergency accommodation and can you tell me like some of the most common things that you're seeing that are affecting well, people look i've i've entered a number of emergency accommodation units and um, went as far as closing an emergency accommodation unit um, with dublin fire brigade and at the health and safety authority um, and you know we've seen a lot and, and you know if you do look at the the my name is campaign twitter um, and you'll see some of the facilities that are being operated are, are operated by mainly private operators and um, that are being paid extortionate amounts of money in order to provide a service you know and you know some of those photographs that are there if you look at them now you'll see that there's there's um beds that are urinated on you know stains and you'll see carpets with blood on them you'll see 
bed bugs and children and um, photographs of children that have got out of bed in the morning and, and they're being bitten and um, by, by you know things that are walking in the beds we've seen toilets that are hanging apart we've seen shower and um, we've seen showers that are overflowing and um, you know it's it's shower basins that are overflowing we, we've seen a hell of a lot of i suppose unacceptable um facilities across the country and you know it was you know to highlight that um is something that's always being aimed to do but i suppose supporting the families that are in there is also something that we need to do as well and you know we have a dedicated family support unit um in our office on amian street and they work closely with the families that are in those units and we would engage the council immediately once we receive a complaint um you know they're not always happy about that um, but I suppose our, our job is to advocate and some of these families are not able to advocate or don't know the, the avenues in which they, they could go to advocate. So, um, you know, we, we've got a pretty streamlined approach to how we deal with this. And, you know, the last thing that we want to be doing um, is ruining anybody's business. Or, but if, do these people are being paid. They're being paid a lot of money to provide a service, you know. And when there's children involved, you know, we have to ensure um, that they're getting the best possible uh, service that can be provided to them and um, you know just at a time when someone is made homeless it's it's a time of distress for for most families and children being uprooted from their community and uprooted from their family support network and their schools and everything else and um, that goes on around them and to be put into a room and um, that you know one one room maybe with two beds and three or four family members staying in that one room you know that's unacceptable to say the least but to be put in a room um, that has beds that are, are urine soaked, you know, and that have toilets that are that are not cleaned, and to have carpets that have blood on them, um, you know, and, and people may think that, that that's an exaggeration, but the truth is there. The photographs are available. You can see exactly what's going on within these units, um, you know, and again, people are being paid to, to manage these and being paid to provide this kind of service. So, you know, and, and that's my money and your money and the taxpayers' money that's paying for this. Um, so we should be ensuring that the best possible, uh, you know, results are being, uh, we should be getting the best possible results for our taxpayers' dime, should we say, you know, but we certainly shouldn't be putting children in danger and we shouldn't be putting children into rooms that are uh, unhygienic or unacceptable. Yeah. Um, taking it back now, just to 2013, when you actually started Inner City Helping Homeless, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to that beginning and then how things have progressed since then? Um, I suppose, you know, over the, the last five years, we've, we've steamrolled in regard to um, providing service and having to adapt to change um, within homeless services. And, you know, ICHH started as a small conversation in a bar. And, you know, that bar, um, what was it? It, it, it ended up that we'd we done an outreach one night or a soup run one night and, you know, that steamrolled into another night and another night and then by, it was November 2013 and by February um, we found ourselves in big massive offices and, um, you know, everybody has a role and a title and we need to register and the regulator is in on top of you and, you know, you need your CHY number and, and it, you know, it was something that, was, that originated from empathy and compassion and people wanted to help. But then there was an awful lot of red tape that came with that. And, you know, we had to ensure that we were doing things correctly. At that time, we would have been dealing with that prior demograph of people, um, you know, the, the 30 to 50-year-old male, you know, that, that would have been the, the highest recorded um, engagement would, would have been with a male uh, and uh, on street after 11 o'clock at night, sleeping bag. Um, and, you know, it used to be a case of just a cup of tea and a sandwich. Um, the outreach support workers would, would uh, hand out at night time. And I suppose as we 
grew when we got bigger, um, we start realizing that we had to put better services in place because they weren't readily available to those individuals that were out there on the street. So, um, you know, we, we kind of, we trained, we self-trained, we self-taught, we sent people on courses, we, you know, we tried to better ourselves as an organization so we could better those individuals that were, um, that were out there and that we were engaging with. And I suppose then we had to adapt as, you know, year one went and year two went by, we start seeing the more, the demograph change up to the family supports and, and children coming in the door. And, you know, we'll never forget the first night um, we were at the GPO and a family arrived up uh, with three children and one of them in a pram and two of them holding on to each side of, of the pram and the mother and father. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked. It's something I hadn't seen before. And a family arriving at nine o'clock, um, nine o'clock at night, to the GPO uh, to come to a, a table that we had food on um, was just unbelievable. It was something that, you know, I'd never seen before. And the people that were attending that table all had, wouldn't say all had, but many of them had issues that this family didn't have. You know, some of them had substance abuse issues. Some of them had mental health issues. And that wasn't the place for that family. So, you know, we, myself and, uh, and and the team that were there, we brought the family to McDonald's and decided that we'd, you know, we'd be better off sitting them down there and having something to eat and getting the story and finding out what was needed and what was required. And I suppose that was my first experience in the system. And how am I going to look after this family and how are we going to engage properly and ensure that this family is looked after? Um, a long time later, they ended up getting housed, you know, but it was a, it was a rocky road in order to do that. But I found out how dysfunctional the system was. And to see a family and mother and father that were forced onto the street at night time and had nowhere to go and had no money to buy food in Ireland, in a first world country, you know, this is not acceptable. We're a very rich nation, no matter how far we crashed. Um, and to have somebody like that stand in front of you, um, in front of the iconic GPO, uh, you know, midweek, um, dull night and, and three beautiful children. It's, it's, it was shocking. So we had to change how we operated. We had to change how um, we approached things. We, we realized that there was a big issue in regard to families and families, um, you know, not being supported correctly by government, not being supported correctly by um, those individuals or those organizations um, that were tasked by government to look after them. No family should end up on the street um, at, at that hour of night, particularly with three children. But that got extremely worse, um, you know, over the coming months and coming years. Um, you know, there was times when we were dealing with three and four families on an average night. There was times when families were coming knocking on our door um, in our Amiens Street office and um, they would nowhere to go. And our, our office was the last resort. They had attended the homeless service unit. They were told, we have nothing for you. Go and self-accommodate. You find a hotel, ring us back and we'll pay for the hotel for you. So that meant the families were walking the streets asking receptionists at hotels, will you take a Dublin City Council payment? Can we have a room here for two weeks? Dublin City Council will pay you. Some of the hotels would say yes. Those hotels filled up very quickly and many of them hadn't got rooms. And then people that were homeless were telling other people that, well, you know, we got a room down here maybe. And most of the, some, well, some of the hotels now are, are basically uh, leased out to Dublin City Council that all they take is, is homeless service payments. Other hotels won't touch them. Um, up until recently, uh, €9,000 a month was being spent on one family and two rooms in the Gresham Hotel. A month. That's just absolutely shocking. You know, two rooms in the Gresham, nine grand a month. So 
this problem, you know, the, the problem of, of rough sleeping still exists and it's still extensive and it's still, you know, we recorded the highest ever number of rough sleepers was 203, I think, on the streets not too long ago. Um, but family supports have taken over homeless services and, you know, the new the new demograph of homeless is children. And, you know, this, this is something that's never been seen before, and particularly for us um, trying to implement change and trying to learn as we went along and trying to do everything properly and right and ensure that the best support services were being put in place. Everything was happening very, very quickly and everything was, um, it was like a steam train, you know, and, and uh, press were all over it because they wanted the real hard fact raw stuff, which other NGOs wouldn't provide because they're state funded. And, um, you know, we've, we've been in a position where we're looking at, at NGOs that are supposed to be advocating on behalf of um, families and people that are experiencing homelessness. Um, but written into the contracts, they're only allowed to stipulate so much, um, you know, and they're not allowed to come out. Uh, and I suppose we, we see Father Peter McFerry is very vocal um, in regard to homeless services. And, you know, to, to, I think he does an amazing job um, but there's a lot of NGOs out there um, that should be as 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 vocal as Father McFerry, um, you know. And these are basically being tasked by government now to run homeless services. We've basically sold out homeless services to the NGOs. We pitted NGOs against each other, um, basically to deal with contracts and are fighting with one another for a contract, a government contract, in order to provide a service. And that means reduced wages, untrained staff. We've a number of facilities around the town that are accommodating um, and, and something I, I met with Minister Zappone on two weeks ago was um, child protection issues and child protection policies within these um, facilities. That these are privately operated facilities that have um, staff working in them that are not guard vetted, that haven't got appropriate child protection training. Um, we're going back to where we were, you know, uh, many moons ago with the Mike Dillon laundries and warehousing people in family hubs and you know communal living facilities so there's a number of those facilities now at the moment spread around the town that the, the government are basically saying this is the answer to homelessness we, we'd stop booking the hotels we'd stop booking the b&b's um, and we we'd put them into communal living facilities um, so you know there's 16 operational now around the city there's a thousand people living in 16 of these a thousand adults living in 16 of these units and 600 children so we've 1,600 um, adults and children within these uh, 16 units, and the majority of staff in these units are not trained, and are trained or, or are trained to a low level, or wouldn't have proper social care training. And Minister Zappone, um two weeks ago ha has said that an investigation will be opened up into that, and, and it will be looked into. But you know what we're seeing is just it's a result of systemic failure, continuous systemic failure. You know we're trying new ideas, but we're looking too much. Um, at the short-term approach to homelessness rather than the long-term approach. You know, the long-term approach needs to be that we need to build social housing and we need to provide social housing. Um, but at this time, we're looking at the short and medium term. And, and, you know, when we look at these 16 facilities, these 16 facilities are styled on and managed in some cases by um, the same operators that operate direct provision centres um, across Ireland. You know, and that's a shock to some people. You know, and it was certainly a shock to us when we found out this information. But I suppose, you know, this is the new wave of homelessness and this is the government response really um, to that. So we're talking about Aramark here, the company that are, mm -hmm. have been profiting off of direct provision centres. Yeah. 
how how does that kind of process work in terms of people coming in to begin maneuvering their capitalist organization to mm-hmm. profit off of homelessness services and how how do you guys keep a tab on these things well look we, we've an amazing team of people down there and what we what we do is we do an awful lot of investigative work as well you know to find out who's operating facilities as they open um, you know, a lot of that stuff is very hard to get. We have to FOI the council and, you know, it's not a case of information being provided um, to you at the drop of a hat. It's a case of having to go and extensively dig into. Um, and they send you around in circles. You know, Dave, Dave you, you might as well be a, a mouse on a wheel at times um, trying to chase uh, some of the information. But I suppose, you know, we need to ensure that that information is readily available. And, you know, one facility um, in, in the city centre at the moment, which was closed down um, due to uh, an investigation that we had done into the unit. We actually entered that unit with Dublin Fire Brigade to find out that um, the, the, the fire exits had been chained up and we photographed and we issued those photographs that the actual fire exits in the unit were chained up with locks and chains, that the fire alarm um, had red lights flashing all over it, that the fire alarm wasn't sustainable in the building, that the, basically the building wasn't suitable for the needs. And yet they had one floor of that building with families in rooms right across the floor. Um, and this is a private operator, you know, but, you know, out of sight, out of sight, out of mind is, is the, the reaction, in my opinion, to that. Um, so we need to keep on top of who's operating the facilities, who's being paid. Like one hotel last year got over 5 million euros um, from the council for emergency accommodation rooms within that hotel. Um, you know, we're talking in excess of 56 million euros being spent last year on hotels uh, in Dublin region. You know, that's, that's serious money. So people are profiting. I don't believe charity is charity anymore. We're a volunteer organisation, number one. Um, but when I look around and I see what goes on in regard to homeless services, homeless services become an industry. Um, and, you know, I get kicked for saying this, but, uh, you know, it's my belief that when we look at the NGOs, the NGOs have become industry. They have become a service provider for the government in order to tackle a crisis that's not being tackled correctly, yet what we have is a black hole and we're filling that black hole full of money continuously. And, you know, it's costing what one, one organization um, across Dublin received over 77 million euros last year from council or, or departmental grants and stuff like that to provide service in regard to homelessness. That's unacceptable. You know, we're basically spoon feeding money into organizations and private companies and NGOs and Anybody that will take it, um, but yet we're not building social housing. And that's what we need to do is build. And unless we build and unless we're in a position um, where we build 10,000 houses this year, you know, we're not going to tackle this crisis at all. What we're going to see is continuous money being spent on, you know, managers and CEOs and, and you know, uh, and you understand that people have to be paid and people have to be paid within some of these organizations in order to provide a job. But, you know, many people would be unemployed um, within the homeless service industry uh, if we were to lose all the jobs and sort this crisis tomorrow. Mm. Um, so I don't think there's political will. I don't mm. think there's will from many organisations, you know, to, to fix this crisis and, and to, to move forward with it. Can you tell me a bit about what the turnover for the ICHH would be in a year? We're, we're up now, I would say, for last year. Um, we operate February to February, so we'd be looking at a quarter of a mil. Really? Um, and to, what does the vast majority of that go on in terms of services? Um, well, I suppose, obviously, um, we 
at times end up having to pay for accommodation and hotels and B&Bs while we're trying to transition people from in, into whether it be council accommodation. Um, obviously, we have overheads in regard to our building and stuff like that um, on Amiens Street. Um, you know, but one thing that we can stand over is um, that you know there, there's no management team paid, there's no volunteer paid, there's um, there's a, an administrator um, in the organisation. Um, so so that would you know zero point I think it's zero point zero five percent of our overall budget um, would, would cover a wage um, for an administrator. So that would be very 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 low compared to any other organisation across the town. Um, and you know we do need that we, we do need that air traffic controller um in, in the organization in order to to keep everybody in check keep me in check and make sure i, I attend interviews and, and <laughs> likes it here and, and make sure my diary is uh, is in check but um you know look we've 187 volunteers um in the organization at the moment and that spreads right across from the kitchen um to admin to reception you know we open 16 hours a day five days a week and then we operate um eight hours a day over the other two days as well so you know it's an around the clock job it's a job that doesn't stop um and there's always somebody available and there's someone on the end of the phone and um i suppose when it comes to, to that budget um you know obviously insurance costs uh, are huge are massive that we have to insure our outreach volunteers um, we've three vehicles on the road. Um, you know, one of them would be used during the day for collections and deliveries and stuff like that, and transporting a fuel to the likes of Brother Kevin's and Mendicity and other organisations that we partner with. Um, and the other vans then would be two outreach support vehicles that would be on the street physically at night time. And I suppose you know it's even a case now when you go for a point, someone says to me, "Oh, I saw your van." You know, they're there and they're seen in the city. You know, and it's a case of. People know that we do the job because they see us. You know, when, when people are out in town around Dame Street or wherever it might be at night time, they see the vans at night time, they see the teams on the road. Um, we don't receive government funding. So that quarter of a million euros needs to be raised. And, and you know, um, we have a team of people there that work on that. Uh, and, and, you know, from fundraising to volunteer coordination to communications, um, you know, there's so many different departments with so many. And, you know, people say, well, Jesus, a volunteer organization to have, you know, all of that in place. That all needed to be put in place in order for us to do the job that we do. And, you know, it's it's not a case of just going out anymore, like, you know, with the the, the soup and the, the cup of tea and the sandwich. We're offering support services to every individual that's there um, on the street. People are referred at nighttime to day services. They're asked to come in during the day and engage with us during the day in order to... Uh, to try and meet their needs, accommodation needs, or whatever that might be. Um, so I suppose a big chunk of the budget overall is is service. It's it's directly on service. But, you know, p- providing that service, we need to have fans insured and we need to have diesel covered and we need to have phones paid and, you know, um, and food. Food is, is a massive, massive bill every year. You know, we're talking serious amounts of money being paid on food um, um, to be provided every year. And accommodation then, obviously, as well, as I said, is something that's, that's massive in regard to our outgoings. Um, you know, but look, we've been very, very fortunate over the last number of years that we're in a position where, you know, we've partnered with big companies like Aon, Central Bank, um, have partnered with us for two years, um, Facebook, Aspen Insurances, um, you know, and I suppose on the ground then as well, people feel um people feel more comfortable donating to an organization where they can see that the CEO is not being paid 
a hundred thousand euros a year, um, and that there's no major staff costs, and that uh, you know when we when we can stand over the fact that there's 187 people in the building. Um, that are volunteers, you know, people are more comfortable with the fact that they know that their, their Euro is going to provide a service, you know, and that service is actually being done. Um, in terms of your volunteer team, where are the areas that you actually need more volunteers at the moment? What's kind of the most crucial next step in terms of growing your team? Well, I suppose we're, we're in a position now where um, from an outreach support point of view and from the, the family support unit, that we've a dedicated group of people there, but you know, with the GDPR being put in place and data protection and, and all that, admin is just something that's that's massive. And, and ensuring that we're keeping correct records and, and you know, uh, data protecting um, the individuals that that are coming into us and that you know we've proper policies in place and governance and um, you know something that I suppose I'm I'm glad to have seen over the last number of years is the implementation of the charity regulator and. The regulator has has streamlined an awful lot of what's required in regard to governance codes and what's expected from trustees of an organisation. Um, you know, we've we've an excellent board of trustees in place. Um, that that you know they they put an awful lot into the organisation. But um, from looking at you know what we would need overall. It's hard to say on a daily basis. I could be making sandwiches on another. You know, I could be getting a phone call at two o'clock. Uh, in the morning to attend an incident in regard to outreach you know you could be sitting here doing an interview with you so you know we're all kind of multitasking um at a lot of times around mm-hmm. the building but people are dedicated to the positions and i suppose what we try and do as well is ask people you know how many hours can you give a week and 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 you know maybe dedicate that four hours that someone gives to a specific job and ensure that job gets done and gets done correctly and you know, as I said, with the likes of the stuff from from uh, the charity regulator and stuff like that, that's that's massive, massive stuff that needs to be overseen on a, on a weekly basis and ensure that we're we're, we're in compliance. Um, and for a big organisation, um, you know, around the city that have paid staff, that's probably pretty easy for them to do. But for an organisation like ours that haven't got paid staff um, to to cover the likes of those roles. Um, you know, we try and, and pull people's knowledge, um, you know, when they're filling out their application forms. Well, what are you good at? You mm-hmm. know, are you good at making sandwiches? Well, that's what we'll get you doing. Are you good? Are you a solicitor? Well, let's get you upstairs and, and we'll deal with, you know. And look, even from solicitors, but like we've we've great solicitor with Gary Daly, but we look at um, volunteer roles um, where, you know, we're advocating. There's a lot of legal stuff that goes on with, with stuff with, with individuals and um, their rights not being um, adhered to uh, with the council or with the Dublin Region Homeless Executive, you know. So, you know, uh, accountants, we get them in and put them into the finance department, you know. So it's basically dragging the good out of people and what they do and what they're good at and assigning that to a role within the organisation. And look, there's companies, you know, across the city that that don't have the, the, the staff levels that we have, you know, the volunteer levels that we have. 187 people is a hell of a lot of people to manage. Anne Bernie is the volunteer coordination. Uh, and, you know, she's my left-hand woman down there. Without Anne, the plane doesn't sail, basically. You know, like Anne is putting rosters in place for each and every one of those people every week and ensuring that the outreach teams are, are coordinated correctly at night time and then the handovers are done correctly when they come back at night time and making sure they put their milk in the fridge when they come back. Mm. And, you know, so everything, everyone has a responsibility. And I suppose if everybody... Everybody does what they need to do. Um, things sail pretty. And I was, look, we're, we're, 
were hectic at times. It's mad. It's crazy. You know, when you when you when you've got four families sitting in uh, in a room downstairs waiting to see it to to access their their uh, their needs with the DRHE or they're looking for advocacy support or whatever it might be. You know, it's the, the place can be hectic, but you know we wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think it's become a way of life, really. And when somebody comes and wants to volunteer with you, what is the process for them in terms of getting vetted and how do they get assigned? And just to give people that might be listening that might be interested in volunteering a bit of a well, taste. Um, yeah, we, you know, we've kind of made that process easier as well, where you can go online now and you can you can fill out all of the applications and paperwork through the website ICHH.ie. Um, or um, you can contact volunteering at ICHH.com and, and Anne comes back to you with all the paperwork and, and what's needed. Um, we have got Garda vetting policies in place and, you know, from last year there was um, there was regulation put in place last year in regard to individuals that would be working or volunteering in the sector um, and particularly those that would be dealing with vulnerable individuals would require Garda vetting. So, you know, I think we've, we've worked very, very well in regard to getting all of that in place in time um, last year. There are a lot of organisations out there that haven't managed to get that in place um, again and done a great job. And I suppose, you know, when you do come in, um, people are afraid of paperwork. Everyone's afraid of paperwork. Hey, fill now forms. You know, I do anyway. You know, you want to see my desk. But um, I suppose, look, it's, it's simplified. It's, it's, it's an easy enough process. Um, but people do have to be guarded of it. Um, you know, we have to ensure that, that we're dealing with vulnerable people and a lot of vulnerable people on a daily basis. We're dealing with children. Um, you know, the guard of vetting process is, is quickly done online now as well. And it'll probably take you a week. We bring people in then and we induct them and we do a proper induction, um, you know, and we do scenarios with these individuals, what may happen um, on a night. And, you know, that's worked out. Um, I suppose it's worked out a hell of a lot better than the previous system of, of, you know, just coming in and going out and handing out a cup of tea. People are properly trained and, and know how to refer, how to react to what situation. Look, we've had suicides. We've had attempted suicides. We've had overdoses. We've had serious things happen out there and we've learned sorry all the way through um that process and and you know we we ensure that we react to every situation correctly and you know by putting in all of those procedures around volunteering and stuff like that but you know i'd encourage anybody to come down and, and you know get involved because there's a lot goes on you know and for for an organization like ours to be in a position that it's in we're very very lucky you know that we've had the support and we've had the volunteerism and, you know, um, only last night um, we presented one, one of the guys, Tommy. Um, he's been there. Tommy is, is retiring and he's been there since uh, since day one, you know. And, uh, you know, it's like one big happy family. You mm-hmm. know, everybody arrived down to the office to see Tommy off last night, you know. And Tommy is telling me, well, I'm coming back and I might take your desk, you know. <laughs> well, that's absolutely fine by me, Tommy. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a community in itself. And there's so many organizations that are, are, are out there and doing fantastic work i suppose in regard to soup runs and stuff like that but i just don't think that you know icchh is unique and it has been unique it's been very unique since day one um you know and people feel welcome and people feel that you know their, their opinion is respected but there's a line that we tow and we need to be professional about the job that we do you know and it gets done and i suppose you know, anybody that's down there or anybody that wants to come down and have a look and see what way we operate, they're more than welcome. That's great. For people that don't feel like they're in a position to volunteer, obviously a lot of funds get raised for you every every mm-hmm. year and it 
number of different capacities. What is what is one of the biggest ways that those funds get raised and how can people kind of participate themselves? Well, I suppose, you know, a lot of the um, the, the corporate partners that we have, um, you know, that, that, that would be the biggest chunk of funding that would come in um, all, over a year. And we do a number of events with those corporate partners um, in line with their uh, corporate social responsibility programs. But the general public, you know, um, the response from the public to us is absolutely amazing. And, you know, people can log online to ICHH.ie and donate online um, or, or they, they can do it over the phone um, as well. And it's a case of the public support and empathy and compassion. And, you know, at the moment we're looking for funding for a new van and within, you know, a, a week we, we 10,000 euros in the account, you know, and we need another eight in order to get to where we need to be. But the response is always good. Well, I suppose when we go and we ask for something, and we're not always out there with the begging bowl, and, and you know, we don't need to have reserves of, of three million in our accounts. You know, we don't need um, to be in a position uh, where we have money lying there doing nothing. We need to ensure that our day-to-day costs are covered. And, you know, the public response, like, for instance, um, Theresa Kelly is in Edenmore and has opened a communion shop out there for families that are living in emergency accommodation and their children may be making a communion and they're saying now that the average cost of a communion is 800 to 1,000 euros um, per child. Wow. We've some families that have two children making their communion this year and they're living in hotels and B&Bs or family hubs. So, you know, Trees has come, out, come up with an idea that we had um, some suits and, and dresses that would be donated to the office and Theresa went out to a shop owner in Edenmore and asked him, you have an empty unit, can I have it? And she turned it into a communion shop for boys and girls to come out and mammies and daddies now can go out and get dressed for their communion. And they make a donation rather than, you know, paying the full. And the prices on some of the dresses are 250 quid and 300 quid and um, the likes of that. And, you know, that's fine. The child thinks they're going into a shop and, and picking out their communion suit and they're sent off not as normal. They don't know that they've just went in and received... You know, they may have a donation of 10 euro, 50 or whatever it might be. And like, Teresa is thinking how she can support the community and the work that we do and also support the homeless families. And then obviously there's a, a revenue being created then um, through, through monies that are being donated. So, you know, things like that, um, we see a lot of that going on. We see cake sales. We see like, you know, we've seen schools. Um, only this week I, I saw um, on our social media that um, a, a young girl, had spent her confirmation, sorry, or, or, or I don't know, it was a birthday money or something along them lines anyway. Um, but she bought hygiene packs. We hand out hygiene packs at night time that consist of a toothbrush, toothpaste, shower gel, you know, um, the, the bits and bobs you would need to go and have a shower in the morning. We'd hand them out to rough sleepers. And this young girl went out and made so many hygiene packs out of uh, out, out of a few bob that she had raised, you know. So, wow. um, you know, we'd, young Lexi Delaney that had... had ask for donations online and we ask for the practicals you know we don't mind if someone wants to drop in the stock like sleeping bags rather than drop in you know money it's it's absolutely fine by us that's that's really use them you know we've had to put a warehouse facility um in place over the last number of months uh in, in gardner street where we have people that are dropping in clothing and we recycle the clothing whatever clothing we don't put back out onto the street so we don't use um for those that need it um or there's no use, basically, um, we send it off to be recycled and we'll get a revenue from that as well. Um, the the warehouse now, um, we're doing food distribution or redistribution from the warehouse. So we've the likes of Kellogg's and Mars on board, um, 
And what they will do is they will send in food by the pallet and we'll redistribute that then, whether it be to Brother Kevin's or Mendicity or any of the service units um, that, that are around the town. So, you know, the operation is massive. It's huge. And there's a lot going on to save money all the time. Um, but I suppose, look, in, in year one, um, we're, we're, we're looking at, we probably spent in excess of 75,000 euros in year one. Now we're looking at a quarter of a mil. So every year our, our costs have, have driven up dramatically. But they've driven up in line with the service that's being provided and the amount of people that we're engaging with. On street last year alone, um, there was over 37,000 on street engagements. That was physical one-on-one -on -one engagements between an outreach support worker and somebody that um, that was rough sleeping um, or somebody that was homeless on the street. So, you know, we're not saying there's 37,000 people on the streets homeless because there's not, but we engaged with, they were reoccurring engagements that happened right throughout the year. And we log and we, we record all of that data and information on a nightly basis. We can tell you how many males, how many females, how many families are through the door um, in, in the office. So, you know, when we're doing our annual reports and uh, that 37,000 engagements and um, that was up from 32 the year before so we were up 5,000 engagements in in a year so you know in line with, with expenditure and how much we are spending we're seeing that the increase in engagements is always going up and particularly around the family issue now as well and so do you notice that in terms of donations are there certain things in the news and which news stories in particular do you find end up driving people to to get in touch and donate? Well, I suppose Christmas is always, um, you know, we've always got a great response at Christmas. People to, people want to give for Christmas. People are, are, are certainly charitable around Christmas. Um, but the thing is that the operation runs all year round and we have to ensure that we, we have funds in order. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that we have funds, um, you know, that will keep us in operation for a year in advance at any one time, you know, that if anything happened tomorrow and funds weren't available um, to us. So, you know, we we do see, look, we've, we've seen tragic, tragic incidences where we've had many deaths on the streets over the last number of months, even it was particularly late last year, um, that, that we saw an awful lot of deaths on the street and people, you know, tend to, to come our direction in regard to donating at that time, at those times as well. But, you know, it, it, it's a case of, Christmas is always is always a time when people want to donate, and then we, we see a slump throughout the year where we have to physically go out. And we you know whether it be a book a collection, um, in in Grafton Street or in Henry Street, um, on a on a weekend, and then you're putting in permits for that and all the red tape and regulation and everything else, and obviously we're trying to keep in compliance with all that, um. But it's an ongoing job and there's a team there that, that are doing that the same way the advocacy team and the family support unit and wherever else they have their job and that's what they need to do and you need to go out and ensure so you know at the moment we're, we're organizing the cube um to, to be held this year and um, you know we, we done strictly helping homeless two mm -hmm. years ago and um, which raised a phenomenal amount of money as well and um, we've a, a celebrity football match in daily mount park and um, on the 16th of june um, you know, so all those events are, are, are building up to ensure that we have our costs covered for, for the year. And I mean, we've talked a lot about the ever increasing number of homeless people, the ever increasing number of homeless families, the fact that the demographic of people that are seeking your services have cha has changed so much. What do you consider to be the light at the end of the tunnel or is there one at the moment from your perspective? No, there's none at the moment. We have a, we have a homeless tsunami at the moment um it's uncontrollable um it's relentless it's a, it's a case of 
we've no system in place. Um, it is going to get worse before it gets better um, and terribly worse uh, at that rate. Um, you know, we are forecasting up to 15,000 children, um, you know, probably within the third, uh, you know, the latter half of the year anyway, it would be, be up to that, that, that amount of children at least. Um, but I suppose, look, the city is drenched. It's drenched in homelessness. It's drenched in misery. It's, you know, there, there's... There's no vibrance in Dublin anymore, in my opinion. You know, it's 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 a it's a city that that can be so beautiful and you know can do so much. And when communities pull together, and I've seen it happen, you know, a hundred times that when we have problems or we have families and people coming and saying, "Look, I have a spare room or I have a house here that if you need it," you know, we've the Irish have always clung together, and when we need something done, we go out and get it done. But at the moment, the, the, the city is drenched in misery and homelessness is, is causing that. And this is an issue that will topple government, you know, between housing, homelessness and, and the health um, sectors at the moment. And, you know, we've what we've seen over the last couple of days is an air of silence from, from the minister. And, you know, the minister needed to be out in force over the last, um, particularly 48 hours after the bank holiday weekend and those, you know, ridiculous figures being released in regard to the increase in, in homeless services and or the increase in children accessing homeless services. He needed to come out with a plan. The 2020 Rebuild Ireland plan has failed. It's 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 doomed. It's it's going nowhere. We're looking at 2040. Get rid of it. You know, we need the here and the now and we need to ensure that, you know, we stop people from becoming homeless. We're not solving the crisis at all by any of the plans. We've had over 30 failed initiatives from the department over the last two years. And they just haven't worked. And that's, you know, that's truth. It's fact. It's there. It's on paper. And, you know, I believe, you know, and I've met the minister numerous times. You know, we've spoken over the phone. He's been in the office. Um, you know, I'm sure if we rang him now, he'll answer his phone. But the problem is that, you know, the job is not being done. And, you know, he's aware of that fact. He says that he has everything he needs in order to tackle this crisis. I don't believe he does. I don't believe that he has. I don't believe he has the gumption now at the moment. And that's that's honest. You know, I think I've seen so many ministers go through that office in the last five years, and and you know, Owen Murphy was somebody that I believed um, was was going to tackle this. That he, he was getting his teeth into it. You know, Simon Coveney he ran out the door with his tail between his legs over to the. Uh, Department of Foreign Affairs for his nice little trips abroad and whatever else, you know, he didn't want to be visiting the families in the hotels. He wanted to be visiting the ambassadors in different countries. So, um, and for, for Owen Murphy to come in, you know what, I, I really believed at the start that he was somebody that could have, could have solved this crisis. Um, he certainly talked the talk and, you know, at the moment, um, he's not talking. He's, he's ran away. He's, he's silenced. That's unacceptable for a minister. That's a, he's in a position now where I haven't heard anything from the housing department or the minister in two days on foot of the biggest um, increase in uh, in child homelessness over the last number of years since we started recording figures. You know, so minister needed to be out every day this week and telling us what's happening. These are the plans. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to tackle this crisis. And he's not. And his silence is deafening. And you know, until he comes out. And announces a stream of plans in order to um, to tackle this crisis. You know, we did say last Friday on the, the release of the figures that I'm giving him a month. And believe me, when I start calling for his resignation in a month's time, I will be calling. And you know, it, it's a case of um, 
his door needs to be open now and he needs to start shouting back and he needs to start firing from all um, from all angles and, and, and tackling this crisis head on and until he does that you know we're going to see more and more people suffer and particularly those people that are living in emergency accommodation and being abused. If the minister was to come out tomorrow with a plan what would be the top five things that you would want to see in it? Um, a revised social housing plan um, would be number one that we would need um, a, a, an increase in the amount of social housing units that are being promised. What we are seeing is a case of the voluntary housing bodies and an over-reliance on the voluntary housing bodies to take money from Europe to build. Right. Because the government don't want to have to, to take that money down. It affects their loan rates, it affects their GDP and everything else. So the government don't want to borrow from, um, from Europe in order to build social housing. They want the voluntary housing bodies to do that. The government needed direct social housing bill plan. Councils need to be funded and funded adequately in order to provide the social housing that they're being told they need to provide. So where the minister is telling the councils they need to pull their finger out and get social housing built, he's not releasing the money. And we've heard Dohi Dioulin, the chair of the housing SPC, tell us that, that that money is not being made available for those bills to be done. Um, totally, I would say we need to stop using hotels. We need to stop... Uh, using B&Bs and we need to stop using family hubs. We need to ensure that people are given adequate housing and supports. Um, fourth, wraparound services. Wraparound services provided right throughout the system. We're in a p- position now where homelessness and housing is affecting every other government department, whether it be health, whether it be education, schools. Um, you know, it's a case of uh, homelessness is, is, you know, children not turning into schools, children turning into schools hungry. Um, you know, not being able to wash clothing correctly because there's no washing machines in these hotels. You know, we need a revamp and we need to look at what way we're, we're adequately um, or we're inadequately dealing with homelessness now at the moment. And lastly, I would call for the disbandment of the Dublin Region Homeless Executive. I think they're dysfunctional. I think they're in a position now where Eileen Gleeson's position is untenable. She's, you know, we, we've heard for a resignation being called um, on several other occasions. Um, over the last number of months and particularly in regard to silly comments that she made um, in regard to homeless people a number of months ago. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that, that, you know, the final point should be that the disbandment and a, and a proper housing agency to be put in place to deal with housing and homelessness and that we want CEO, that we want person that's answerable. And if you do, don't do your job, you get fired. The minister is not doing his job. Eileen Gleeson is not doing her job. They need to be fired. That's the response to that. Are there is there anything that in the short term could be happening that isn't happening to help take some of the pressure off a system that where there's no social housing <coughs> and those, so there's no immediate in the next six months opportunity well, at to at the moment in okay, let let's look at what, what the T shock has said that we've a very we've actually a low population of homelessness mm. <laughs> in regard to international levels and you know Okay, Leo, his socks are great. Um, but I suppose now at the moment, we've over 600 voids in Dublin. Voids are units that are that might need a light fixed, that might need um, a toilet replaced, um, a bathroom kit out. A, you know, these are some of these, you would when you look at them on paper and see what needs to be done, you'd say, hang on, I'll go down and do it myself. And, you know, we'll open that unit tomorrow. But obviously for insurance and everything else, it needs to go to, t- like they need to send it out to tender to get a light fix now, which is ridiculous That's because they've no staff um, working directly 
for DCC in regard to those maintenance departments that they used to have or the levels of staffing are not there. So everything gets shipped out to tender. Company comes back in, company gives their quote. Oh, we'll take that company there. Another three weeks down the road, the light still hasn't been fixed. You know, those units need to be opened. We need a full assessment of what units are available in the city, whether they be voids um, or, or whether it be um, units that are waiting on transfers. Or, and we need to find out, is it 600? Is it 800? Is it 1,500? We don't know. I don't think the council know, you know. So um, those units need to be made available, opened up straight away. NAMA need to make whatever properties that they have available um, in, in their system um, directly available to the council boroughs and not to the Dublin Region Homeless Executive or anything along them lines. They need to be directly to South Dublin County Council, don't literally rat down and say, okay, look, this is what we have in this area. We have 150 apartments here. Then we go back to hearing that what we don't want is um, a, a, a social exclusion um, in regard to we want to ensure that people that are going into these units, that we the demographic of people is all different. And, you know, we don't so want this whole integration. Yeah. We agree to an extent, but we have a crisis. So we need to tackle the crisis. So let's get these families in here now and let's start, you know, you know, if, if we want to put 10 apartments up for sale, for people that are looking for affordable housing, that are caught in the lockdown generation, that are not able to afford um, housing or able to afford a mortgage, with people that have been evicted, you know, we could integrate correctly if we wanted to. No political will, nobody in charge, nobody talking to anybody else in the same office. The woman over there is sending the woman facing her an email in regard to, you know, it's just a vicious circle. We need a housing agency. We need one person responsible with an, any amount of staff that he or she requires in order. That's what needs to be done. Get it done. And until we get that kind of leadership or we get that kind of um, direction from somebody, we're going to still be in this. We're going to be in a situation that's going to be 10 times worse um, in, in a very short period of time. You know, so um, again, it falls back to the minister, falls back to the Dublin Region Homeless Executive and Eileen Gleeson. Mm. And so we're talking before this, you know, march that's happening on Saturday to, mm -hmm. to protest homelessness and the housing crisis. Can you tell us a bit about what your involvement is with that and what you're hoping to see come out of it? Well, I suppose, you know, there's a couple of things that I want to um, put on the record here because we've had a, we've had a certain amount of negativity around um, the, the National Housing and, and Homeless Coalition. Um, I, I've sat in the coalition for a, a, a just, a, I'd say, nearly a year now and there's a multi-diverse um, grouping of people that are involved in that uh, coalition. Um, there, there seems to be a campaign in regard to, to um, attacking the coalition um, because of a certain political parties' involvement in the coalition. Um, there are a number of political parties involved. There are a number of NGOs. There are a number of grassroots community-based organisations. Um, you know, I think we're up to about 40-odd organisations that are involved in the, in the coalition in total. Um, and people are refusing to march because of Labour. And, you know, I, I, my politics aside, um, you know, we, we, Alan Kelly's rat on homeless services, um, you know, destroyed it. And, and I, I will stand over that statement. And um, I suppose we can't allow an issue such as one political party to stop us from getting out there on the streets on April 7th in order to, to tackle this problem. This is the biggest social crisis to hit us um, as a society. And until we face up to that and, and, you know, we start telling government 
And the only way we can tell government is by putting feet on the street and telling them that this is no longer acceptable to me, it's no longer acceptable to you, and enough is enough. And, and you know, we need, this is something that we as a society want fixed. We don't want our generation of children or this generation of children growing up in hotel rooms or B&Bs or not being able to get to school or having to get three buses to school every morning. And the only way that that's going to be reactive is if we get out there and we put feet on the street. And, you know, the, the, the fact that there's a, a, an orchestrated campaign in order to, to, uh, to tackle the, the, the Housing and Homeless Coalition because of Labour's involvement, you know, Labour are not running this, um, this campaign. They're not running this uh, coalition. Um, it's a broad-based coalition of people that it took a long, long time to get together. Um, not everybody agrees with everybody around the table, um, certainly political parties. Um, you know, I haven't been at every meeting and I've, I've, you know, done my best to try and get there when uh, required. I've been asked to speak on Saturday alongside uh, Father Peter McFerry and the Irish Travellers' Rights Organisation and um, ICTU um, will be representing the unions and, and, and Tina McVeigh is representing the coalition. Um, you know, and that's a broad based, that's a broad based uh, group of speakers that are going to be there. Um, this is not about one political party. It's not about you know, five political parties. It's about the people that are trapped in homelessness across this country. And until we as a people can, you know, brush aside our differences, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, me included, you know. And my politics, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan, let's say, of Labour, but the fact is that's not going to stop me from getting up there and speaking and, and, and advocating on behalf of the hundreds or thousands of clients that I've dealt with over the last five years, you know, um, there's been a campaign, I suppose, on Twitter um, over the last 48 hours directed at myself in regard to um, the, the Housing Coalition. And, you know, um, I've been called out um, in regard to my position. And my position, I'll state very clearly, I'm marching um, alongside those individuals that I advocate on behalf of, not, um, not, not marching um, beside any political party. Um, and I'm speaking on behalf of those individuals that I engage with on a daily basis. Um, I have a job to do. It's very hard um, doing that job. And it's particularly hard as a volunteer. Um, but I believe that the only way that, that I can do my job is to get up there and advocate on behalf of those people that need advocating on behalf of. And, you know, downplaying this crisis or, or, or trying to brush it aside because of um, a political party's involvement is not going to help us fix this crisis whatsoever. You know, so we need unification, um, you know, and I'm not asking anybody to unify with Labour or any political party. I'm asking people to unify as people, you know, and, and get out there um, on April 7th and, and get your point across and let people know that we're not happy with what's going on in society today. And for those that can't make it to actually march in person on the 7th, how can people get involved with ICHH? Um, well, I suppose, look, we're, we're meeting at the candy store um, facing the Garden Remembrance on, on Saturday at 12.15. And anybody that wants to come, we'll have our, our paraphernalia there in regard to um, our posters and banners and flags and everything else that, that comes with that. Um, but I suppose social media has, has an awful lot of power, you know, an awful lot of power. Um, and I'd ask people to be logging on and looking at, you know, um, ICHH Dublin, um, my own uh, Twitter account, Anthony ICHH, the My Name Is uh, campaign. And, you know, follow those and, and retweet and hashtag. And, you know, the, the, the power of social media is tremendous, I believe. And I think that 
anyone that says to government, don't watch social media telling you lies, because I guarantee you Leo is sitting there with his phone in his hand 24-7 at home. So, you know, whatever way we're sending this message, we need to send it together. Whether that's through our social media avenues, whether that's through um, the, the, the march on Saturday, um, or coming along and volunteering and getting involved with us. You know, again, it's ICHH.ie. People can log online and figure out how they can get involved from there. That's great. Thank you so much for coming right. and speaking to us, Anthony. Um, just a reminder that DDR is also still selling uh, our first compilation, which all proceeds go to helping ICHH. And uh, we hope that a lot of people are going to head down for the march on Saturday. I know a lot of DDR uh, residents are going to be there. So um, we hope that everybody gets out in the streets and makes their voices heard. Thanks for listening to Current. Remember, you can tweet us at at currentddr or email us at current at dublindigitalradio.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on the Dublin Digital Radio SoundCloud.